Dear Lord, we thank you for passages like this in your word, uh, things that seem a little uh, larger than life, even at times hard to believe, uh, but that's what they are, hard to believe, not hard to understand. So we pray that you give us understanding as we look at your word and that you give us hearts to believe your word. We pray these things, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Yeah, as Mark said, this is probably one of the most controversial passages in all of Scripture. If you wrote a book of controversial passages, you'd probably put this at number one or maybe number two. So we're going to spend some time defending it this morning, defending a literal interpretation, um, and showing that this is really the historical, traditional interpretation of it as well, uh, that any other interpretations have really come about in modern day, in fact, until about 300 AD, there wasn't a second interpretation of this. Uh, there was only the literal. So we're going to look this morning at the angelic corruption that happened before the flood. Now we, we've looked in the last two sermons at when this might have happened, but I have not yet explained to you why or that, uh, honestly, that it happened. We haven't come to the place in scripture until this morning. Uh, that states explicitly what is happening during the genealogy of Seth's line. So again, I'll open with the main point so you can have this in your mind as we go along. And that is that God reveals history as it really happened. We have many uh, fables and myths. We have many history books uh, that we study in school, which you sometimes might call fables and myths. But what God reveals is truth. And we look at history through the lens that he provides us. And when we do that, we have not only his divine commentary on all of history, but we have the facts of what actually happened. So his divine commentary on history provides the only firsthand and infallible account of history. He was there. He watched it happen. His hand was in it from the beginning. So here it answers to the source of humanity's universal mythology the things that we have shadows of in the collective memory of mankind. The Bible, when taken literal, gives us the reason for why mankind has that in their collective history. No matter what culture, or what group of people you find across the earth, whether they've had contact or not, they all have a universal mythology that connects. This is that universal consciousness, that memory of when mankind was all one, when we were not spread out across the whole earth before the flood. And it's also important to know what happened in the beginning, because Jesus Christ told his disciples that just like the coming of the Son of Man, it will be just like the days of Noah. So we want to know what's going on in the days of Noah. We don't want to just pass this by. We don't want to relegate it to, uh, to inconsequential or unimportant passages. In fact, I'd challenge you to find a single passage in Scripture that's unimportant. Uh, it was all given to us because it is important. So we're going to take our time and do our due diligence to defend what is going on here in Scripture. So we begin Genesis 6, 1 through 2 with these sons and daughters. Who are they? What are they doing? Why are we breaking out of our pattern of genealogy 
to explain what's going on here. So first we look at the multiplication of mankind on the earth. Genesis 6.1 says, Now it came about when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. So this is the setting. This is the timing of what's happening. This is not beginning in the days of Noah, but this is going back and talking about what has been going on. We call this the law of recurrence. It happens a lot in Hebrew scripture. This happened in Genesis 2 when God had given us the details of what happened in creation week, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. And then in Genesis 2, 4 through 25, he goes back and tells us more detail about what happened on the sixth day. It's not a second creation story, but he's filling in the gaps, filling in the details. And he's doing that here in Genesis 6. He's filling in the details of what's been going on during this genealogy. That way he didn't have to break out of the genealogy. He could start it and finish it, and then go back and fill in the details. And this, in fact, was in the genealogies. And it was mentioned in every single genealogical line except for Noah, because Noah only had three sons and they're listed for us. He did not have more sons and daughters. But this is what is happening when it says that this patriarch bore other sons and daughters. They are multiplying across the face of the earth. Genesis 1.28 told us, God blessed them, being man and woman, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, they did this, and this is the result. They are filling the earth. But this command was given to them before the fall. Filling the earth isn't itself bad, but filling the earth full of bad people produces some bad results. However, God is still acting in history, and God is using this providentially and sovereignly. In fact, God provides that mankind multiply at a greater rate. Now that there is death introduced into humanity, we need more people in order to continue that collective line. So God says to the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain and your childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. If you remember, looking back about three months, we, we spent some time in this verse because I think the NASB does a less than satisfactory job of translating it. Once again, they're trying to make it more understandable. And in so doing, they, uh, they, make our, uh, they make it pretty hard, actually. So here is how I would better translate this passage. I will greatly multiply your pain and your pregnancy through bearing children. This is a bit of a wooden translation. It's not as clean and smooth as the NASB, but I believe it's more theologically accurate. So two things are happening in this curse on the woman, which is actually a provision and a curse for the woman. She will have pain in childbirth and she will have increased childbirth. So both pain and her progeny will increase. So she's having more children than she would have uh, not under the curse, and that is to offset the results of the curse, which is death. So we've got a population boom. We have mankind increasing rapidly over the face of the earth. And we've seen what some of those men are like, men like Lamech. But we've also seen that 
there are men like Mahujael and Methushael, whose names themselves represent worship of God. So we've got both godly men and ungodly men on the face of the earth. And it's not necessarily divided down the line of Seth or Cain. It's very presumable that there were ungodly men in the line of Seth. And it is very presumable, if not evidential, that in the line of Cain, there were godly men. So when we come to this question of the sons of God, already one of the more popular views, which is that the sons of God represent the Sethites, and the daughters of men represent the Canaanites, Canaanites. This interpretation is already challenged because there is no scriptural evidence that Cain's line was corrupt purely and that Seth's line was purely good. Nevertheless, a lot of people do hold this view, the godly Sethite view. In fact, I've underlined the commentaries that I go to frequently, that I agree with often. C.I. Schofield, C.H. McIntosh, Matthew Henry, many of us have him on our shelves, Martin Luther, Bishop Usher, Jameson Fawcett Brown, it's a very old commentary, but a very good one. In fact, MacArthur uses that um, so much that you could almost call the MacArthur Bible the study Bible, the updated Jameson Fawcett Brown study Bible. Abraham Cravilla, Louis Burkhoff, Wayne Grudem, Leopold, Keelan Delish, uh, Millard Erickson, Gordon Lewis, and Bruce Demarest. Most of the ones on the right side are modern scholars. On the left side, these are not as modern. So we see this spans time as well as tradition. We've got covenant theologians on here. We have dispensationalists on here. We have Arminians on here. This is not a line that draws down denomination, but this is a line that draws down how do we handle this passage? Do we let it say what it says, or do we seek to answer for God rather than let him answer for himself? The fallen angel view which is my view, is held by these men. And you can see fewer are underlined in this list. I actually am disagreeing with most of the commentaries that I read this week. Um, so I'm hopefully going to give you a good defense of why. But you can see John MacArthur, very popular scholar. He holds to this fallen angel view. This isn't a view that is only on the fringes. Arnold Gabeline, he's a little older, William Kelly, Merrill Unger. We disagreed with him quite strongly on the age of the earth, but here we're agreeing with him. Spicer, I stopped using his commentary. I disagreed with it on almost every point, but here I agreed with him. I think he got it right. Charles Ryrie was not dogmatic about this, but he did hold to the fallen angel's view loosely. Lewis Berry Chafer, Jonathan Sarfati, a Probably the, mo the newest commentary I'm using is Jonathan Sarfati. He holds this view. He is a Messianic Jew. 
and he is uh, friends with Arnold Fruchtenbaum, although they disagree on quite a bit as well. It's hard to be friends with Fruchtenbaum without disagreeing with him a few times. But they're using lots of traditional sources. Josephus, Philo, the Midrash, which is a commentary uh, of sorts. Uh, but Elliot Johnson, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, Henry Morris, the father of creation science, held to this view. This is a very controversial topic, a very controversial passage. Almost no one agrees. These are the primary views. There are a few others, but I found no more than one for each of the additional views. Trust me, I went through every book in my library and the church library trying to find what everyone thinks on this because it's very divided. But I think we have plenty of evidence simply in the language of the text, the context of where it appears in scripture, and the traditional interpretations of this passage by those who first received it and by those who, were, uh, who had it in, their first, uh, in the First Testament, the Old Testament, the Jewish interpretation of this passage. So we begin with language. In this passage, we have the sons of God. What does sons of God mean? Well, in the Hebrew, this is B'nai Elohim, literally, sons of gods. That Elohim is used uh, for God's name in chapter 1 of Genesis. We saw that. It can mean powerful God or it can mean plural gods. It also allows for the Trinity. So this could mean sons of God, singular, the Almighty. It could mean sons of gods which uh, might be a mythological interpretation of this, that these angels were, were children of gods. However, I, I don't believe that is exactly what's going on here. But I look to Job 1.6, Job 2.1, and Job 38, basically all references in Job to these sons of God. And in every instance, it's referring to angels. Job is the closest in time to what is happening in Genesis. Job is the oldest account uh, besides Genesis itself. We don't know exactly when it was written. It may well have been written before Genesis was written. This was the language used before and during the time of Moses. So in Job 1.6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Satan, being an angel, came among a group of angels to present themselves to God. Job 2.1 is the same thing, but a second time that this happened. It's the same phrase, but it only says, and again, this happened. In Job 38, we look at the creation. God telling Job that Job has no idea all the things God's been up to in history. He only knows a sliver of it. And here is one of those slivers that Job probably didn't know. But we get a glimpse into God's glory. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? He gives us a timestamp here. Then he gives us a list of things that were going on at that time. He says, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Was man present when God was laying the foundations of the earth? Man was the last creation. Man came about on the sixth day, 
And he wasn't even the first creation on the sixth day. He was the second creation on the sixth day. Man's a little late to the party to be there at the foundations of the earth. Man is also never elsewhere called morning stars or stars at all. But angels are. This is phraseology used for angels. But sons of God is not the only designation that can be used. In fact, God has many names. So here's a selection of other places where we get these sons of the referent God, meaning God under any name. Sons of the mighty. Indicates the same thing, just uses a different name for God. In Psalm 29 and Psalm 89.6, the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible before the time of Christ, translates these words, sons of God, as angels. The Greek or the Hellenistic Jews who put together the Septuagint Bible, translated Hebrew into Greek, chose angels. This was their interpretation of this passage. And we can see why. Psalm 89.6, it says, For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? He's talking about angels. There's also Bene Elion, sons of the Most High. In Psalm 82, 6 through 7, this is speaking of human kings, but it's comparing them to angels. I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. He calls them gods. He calls them sons of the Most High. He says, you yourselves, as kings of the earth, rulers over it, are in a position much like gods of the earth. We can think of how Moses was a god to his brother-in-law. What's his name? I can't remember. That's not in my notes here. And he says, you are all sons of the Most High. He's comparing them to angels. He's comparing them to those things which are above man, not those things which are or are below man. So he says, you will die like men, because they are men. They're not sons of the Most High. They're not gods. They are like them. Here we have an Aramaic one. Bar Elahin, sons of God. Same word as in the Hebrew, but in Aramaic. In Daniel 3.25, we see the uh, event of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace with one who is declared as like a son of the gods. Like a son of God. Remember that Elohim or the Elohim is the plural form of God. And this is a Babylonian pointing into the furnace and declaring that there is a fourth being in that furnace. And he's looking at what is probably a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't say, look, there is an angel. He says, look, there is one like an angel, one like a son of the gods. In the Old Testament, son of God, or sons of God, rather, is used to distinguish angels. Now I'm going to come back to that point when we get to our application at the very end. 
But in the Old Testament, which is the context in which we are in, this is only ever used of angels or to compare man to angels. So to translate in Genesis 6.1, or 6.2 rather, anything different would make Genesis 6.2 the only exception in all of the Old Testament. We're going to need some pretty strong evidence for a different translation in Genesis 6.2 if we are going to make it the one exception. Everything has to point towards that being an exception if we are to allow that. So then we look at the context, and this is probably the reason most people are satisfied with the Sethite view, because who have we been talking about in Genesis so far? We talked about the line of Cain, we talked about the line of Seth, and now we see these daughters of men and sons of God. We get the impression that Cain's line was bad, Seth's line was good, unless we dig a little deeper and see that there was really a mix. And so people say, well, the context, we're talking already about the sons of Seth and the sons of Cain. But are we really? Moses wove together 11 different documents. Our context begins in Genesis 5, not in Genesis 4. So who have we been talking about in the context? Not the line of Cain. Only the line of Seth has been mentioned so far. Moses comes in and, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, weaves these documents together as a as a divinely guided editor. But this document does not have the line of Seth in it. This document, or the line of Cain rather, it's talking about the line of Seth. Only the line of Seth. So when we get to Genesis 6, 1 and 2, and God is making a distinction, he's using different terms. He's doing that so that we understand that it is different. I might phrase this question we can find both interpretations in this passage, but how else could he have described something different than what was happening in Genesis 5.1, other than using different language? There are plenty of ways he could have made it clear that this was the line of Seth. Obviously, he knows Seth's name. He's already been talking about Seth. He's been talking about this line. Why does he have to begin using new phraseology? because he's talking about something different. As well, when we look at Genesis 6-1, we see that men began to multiply on the face of the earth. Now, this is a masculine term, but it's also a collective term. This is the Hebrew word ha-adam, ha-adama, which is not speaking of any one sect of man, but mankind collectively, all those who trace back to Adam. The very word has the name Adam in it. Adam got his name from this word. Actually, Adam got his name from dirt, and mankind got its name from Adam. So this is another way of saying when the sons of Adam, not the sons of Seth or Cain explicitly, the sons of Adam, began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. Now here's another point. Why is it only daughters? Why is it only, or why does the interpretation of the other side, why are they okay with this being just bad daughters and good sons being corrupted by those bad daughters of the other side? Don't you think there would be some bad sons corrupting the good daughters of the Sethites? Naturally, it would go both ways. Why is it that the sons of God 
are only masculine. I think that's really where the key is, not that all of the children of man are women, but that all of the sons of God are men. They're all masculine. Now we get the view from pop culture that angels are mostly women. Did you know that there is not one female angel in all of scripture? They manifest as men when they come to visit Abraham. They are men when they go to save Lot out of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. They only corrupted the daughters because they were only men. There were no females of these fallen angels. So, naturally, these male angels who took on human bodies did not take husbands, they took wives. That's how they procreate. That was their purpose. Their purpose wasn't to come down and sodomize mankind. It was to come down and corrupt the seed line of Christ. So naturally, they are going to come in bodies that can procreate, and they are going to collect to them humans that can procreate with them. That's the issue. They're procreating with mankind, but they are not Ha'adama. They are not mankind. The reason Jesus had to come as a man was to redeem man, was to be the second Adam. The reason we need a single head of the race is so that we can all be redeemed by a single redeemer. The angels do not have a head of their race. The angels do not procreate amongst themselves. No angel can look to another angel and say, that's my father. No angel can look to another and say, that's my son. There is no kinsman redeemer for an angel because there is no continuity in the angelic race. They were created at one time. So here when man, when it says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, seeing his wife for the first time, this is not inconsequential. It is important that she too was taken out of the flesh of Adam because she will need a redeemer also. She will need to come from Adam. They are all Ha'adama. They became one flesh. There is one flesh from which all mankind comes. And to introduce something foreign into that create something that cannot be redeemed and that cannot produce the Redeemer. So now we move into the traditional interpretations. And for this, we'll have to use some books that you've perhaps been told are taboo. I'm not going to call them taboo, but I will say be careful. They are not inspired. They are just like any other history book, just like any other commentary. They are people's best understanding of what God has said. We start with Philo's interpretation. He is a contemporary of Jesus Christ, 
he was writing at the same time, but he often took an allegorical look, so we're not going to weigh too heavily on his, but we'll see. How did he interpret this passage? Philo says, when the angels of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, they took unto themselves wives of all them whom they chose. Those beings whom the philosophers called demons, Moses usually calls angels, and they are souls hovering in the air. Philo interpreted these as angels in the time of Christ. Josephus, writing a bit after the time of Christ, writes, For many angels of God accompanied with women and begat sons that proved unjust, and despisers of all that was good on account of the confidence that has in their own strength. For the tradition is that these men did what resembles the acts of those whom the Grecians called giants. Now we're going to come back to giants when we see the Nephilim in the passage, because giants is a poor interpretation of this Greek word. You guys will get used to me complaining about everyone's interpretations eventually, or translations rather. Uh, first Enoch 6, 1 through 2. This is a pseudepigraphic work, meaning that this is falsely attributed to Enoch. He did not write this, but this is a Jewish traditional interpretation of what this event uh, really was. So first Enoch 6, 1 through 2, in those days when the children of man had multiplied, it happened, it happened that there were born unto them handsome and beautiful daughters, and the angels, the children of heaven, saw them and desired them, and they said to one another, come, let us choose wives for ourselves from among the daughters of men, and beget us children. Jubilees, from the time before Christ, Jubilees 4.15. And he, that is Mahalalel, called him Jared, his son, because in his days the angels of the Lord, who were called watchers, came down to the earth in order to teach the sons of man and perform judgment and uprightness upon the earth. Now, Jubilees interprets this as the angels having been sent by God and then corrupting themselves by taking on human wives. There's nothing in the biblical text to merit that translation, that interpretation of this passage. So again, we take these with a grain of salt, but we see how the Jews interpreted them. The Testament of Reuben, from the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, verse, or chapter 5, verse 6 says, For every woman who schemes by a harlot's manner is destined for eternal punishment, for it was thus that they charmed the watchers who were before the flood. As they continued looking at the women, they were filled with desire for them and perpetrated the acts in their minds. Then they were transformed into human males. And while the women were cohabitating with their husbands, they appeared to them since the women's minds were filled with lust for these apparitions. They gave birth to giants, for the watchers were disclosed to them as being as high as the heavens." Each one of these interpretations predates the very first interpretation of the Sethite view. The Sethite view came about in the second century after Christ, after Philo and after Josephus, after Christ. Before that, a different view had never been heard of. There is, no, there is not one example in Jewish tradition of any allegorical interpretation of what is going on in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. 
But uh, what is it? Justin Africanus in the 300s AD was the very first one to interpret this as something different. And he explicitly says that his interpretation is allegorical. He says this is not the literal meaning of the passage, but this is what it means to say. It means to say by the sons of God that these are the sons of Seth, the righteous sons of Seth. And it means to say by the daughters of man that these are the unrighteous children of Cain. 300 years after Christ was the very first time this interpretation had ever come about. Actually, 200 years. 300 years after Christ, Augustine gets his hands on it and basically canonizes it into Christian thought. Sadly, for the next 1,500 years, this became the dominant interpretation, not of those who had first received this scripture, the Jews, but of those who had been brought into the fold of God, those who took over this interpretation, one might say. For 1,500 years until about 1,800, this view was predominant, that the angels were not angels, but righteous men of Seth. Unfortunately, this tradition of allegorizing scripture has dominated for the last two millennia. And that's not what we're doing here. We're not allegorizing scripture. We are taking it at face value because it is the authority that we have to go to. Once you begin to allegorize it, you become the authority. You are the one who tells scripture what it means rather than scripture telling you what it means, rather than scripture telling you what happened. So we're letting it speak for itself. We're going back to the traditional interpretation, just as many are today. The Sethite Canaanite view is actually dying out, and thank goodness, because it was a terrible addition to interpretation. So now we finally come to the second part of verse 2, and these ungodly marriages. They took wives for themselves of whomever they chose. These angels came down to earth, manifested themselves in male bodies, just as they did in the event when three angels came to see Abraham in Genesis 18. Those angels were able to eat together with Abraham, and the two of them went off to Sodom and Gomorrah, and the population of Sodom and Gomorrah tried to have sexual relations with these two angels. This is not unheard of in scripture. Another traditional interpretation then of this passage from 2nd Baruch 56. This again is a pseudepigraphal work. This is not inspired word of God. But it says, for he who was a danger to himself was also a danger to the angels. For they possessed freedom in that time in which they were created, and some of them came down and mingled themselves with women. At that time, they who acted like this were tormented in chains. But the rest of the multitude of angels who have no number restrained themselves. And those living on earth perished together through the waters of the flood. This is our traditional interpretation of what's going on here. And notice it's not all of the angels. It's not even all of the fallen angels. It is a subcategory of fallen angels. The rest did restrain themselves. Not 
all sinned in this way and became bound permanently. That's why we still have demons wandering the earth, and we see many accounts of that in the Gospels. Because those spirits, those demons, are not held in chains to this day. 2 Peter 2, 4 through 5, which is the inspired word of God. We can trust this one absolutely. It says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned. When did angels sin? Two times. One in the initial fall, and then a subcategory of angels sinned in a very special way. But he cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Not so of all the angels. Just a subcategory of angels. One of the arguments against this interpretation, the angelic view, is that this would require a double fall of the angels. Yes, it would. That's not an argument against this. Scripture says that that happened. If we are going to take Scripture as true in the New Testament, we must take it as true in the Old Testament as well. These passages become unintelligible if we reinterpret the Old Testament to be allegorical. He did not spare the ancient world then, but preserved Noah. Here's our timestamp. Here's our context of when this happened. He was a preacher of righteousness with seven others, and when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. The rest of Scripture requires a literal interpretation of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. In Jubilees 5, 6, again, uninspired, but history. And against his angels whom he had sent to the earth, that is God, he was very angry. He commanded that they be uprooted from all their dominion, and he told us to bind them in the depths of the earth, and behold, they are bound in the midst of them. These angels abandoned their proper abode, and they did not keep their first domain. This is a double fall of the angels, speaking of a special category of angels. Notice as well that in Jude, these are correlated with the acts of what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. These were sexual sins committed by the angels, just as these were sexual sins committed by the Sodomites. It says that just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these angels. We looked at this about six months ago when we did Jude. These, that pronoun, can only refer back to the angels. Its gender does not match anything else in the context. These angels indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. The Sodomites went after strange flesh by going after people of the same gender, and they also went after angels. They may not have known that, but they did. And the angels went after strange flesh by going after the flesh of mankind. And so in the Testament of Naphtali, again, just history, just an interpretation, chapter 3, verses 3 through 5 says, Do not become like Sodom, which departed from the order of nature. Likewise the watchers departed from nature's order. The Lord pronounced a curse on them at the flood. 
on their account he ordered that the earth be without dweller or produce. We're going to see that in our next sermon. What happened because of all of this? Actually, we'll, we'll get to see some hints of it. So we come back to our timeline here. We look at what happened. There was a revival around 200 years after the creation of the earth, after the birth of Enosh, Seth's son. And this revival affected both lines. But then comes the arrival of these watchers, sometime in the 5th century after creation. And for 12 centuries, they're there. That's going to be important when we get to, chapter, or to verse 4 here, because we're going to see something happens before and something happens after another thing, and I believe that is the introduction of the watchers, not the flood. So let's continue on in our passage. In verse 3, we get the sentencing, the judgment for these acts of the angels. Genesis 3 says, The Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man forever. Because he also is flesh, nevertheless his days shall be 120 years. God is speaking here of man, Ha'adama. He's not talking about the angels. He's handing down judgment to mankind because mankind participated in this rebellious act with the angels. This is one passage that some use as a defense for the Sethite view, saying, see, God is talking about mankind. But do you remember when God cursed the serpent and Adam and Eve? He questions Adam and Eve. He does not question the serpent. Does this mean the serpent is never questioned? No, it means that's not important for man. That's not important for him to reveal to man in Scripture. It's revealed to us later in passages like Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. But it wasn't important for the context of Genesis. Why do we even get the curse of the serpent? Because it's also our promise of a redeemer. I think without that promise of a redeemer being part of the curse on the serpent, there would be no reason for Moses to include that in the context of Genesis. Remember, he's not information dumping here. He's giving us what we need to know. And what we are to concern ourselves here is the judgment on man for man's rebellion. And so God is handing down this judgment that his spirit would no longer strive with man. Well, it's been striving with man for about a thousand years at this point, at the point where he is speaking these words to Moses, or not to Moses, to Noah, these watchers, these angels, had been corrupting earth for a thousand years. God is about to say, I'm done. I'm fed up. My patience has worn thin. But what does it mean that God has been striving with man? God has sent prophets. He sent the prophet Enoch. It was also about these that Enoch... In the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all. Enoch was prophesying about the very end 
of the whole world because of corruption. That end of the world that would be just like the days of Noah. But he also prophesies about his own day and the end of the world that was soon coming by naming his son Methuselah, the only sentence name in the patriarchs, or in the, uh, I guess, in the Sethite line. Methuselah's name means when he dies, it shall be sent. This was a prophecy. Why? Because Enoch was a prophet. That's why his son's name is different than the rest. Noah was also a prophet. Here he's called a preacher in 2 Peter 2, 4 through 5. It says, If God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, one by God's Spirit who strove with mankind, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. God was striving with man. God was sending his representatives to tell them his word, to warn them of judgment. In 1 Peter 3.19, it says, He went and made proclamation to the spirits, that is, Jesus Christ at his death. Those spirits who are now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. God was very patient. And he did this all during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. God's patience is wearing thin. No longer will he strive with mankind. And why is that? Because mankind is also flesh. Why does it matter here that mankind is also flesh? Something is going on with mankind's flesh that is part of the reason for judgment. And it goes back to the created order of man. Man is created on a different order than other creatures. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15.38, we have this stated explicitly by Paul. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of these seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one flesh of man, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. Now some want to say that this means astrological bodies, planets and stars, but you know, planets and stars come up in verse 41. He's talking about something different here. It's distinguished from the planets and the stars that come after this. But the glory of the heavenly bodies is different than the glory of the earthly. The issue here is that man's flesh is distinct from what he is mingling it with. Man is also flesh, and while man is flesh, he must be protected in Noah. Noah was uncorrupted. Noah's line, his three sons, his three sons' daughters, Noah's wife. These were uncorrupted by this corruption. Now, man 
is subject to death. That's part of being in the flesh. That flesh is subject to death. That is a curse, a judgment that is already on each and every man. What God is pronouncing here by the end of all flesh is nothing different than what has already been pronounced. He's moving up the timeline. That flesh of man, by its corruption, by its rebellion, must be put to death. In Genesis 3.20, we see again that Eve is the mother of all living. But what happens when Eve is no longer the mother of all who are alive on the earth? When they have different origins. Well, then the enemy is winning. Or at least the enemy thinks he's winning. Because what was pronounced in Genesis 3.15, in that curse on the serpent, which doubles as our promise of a redeemer, he says that between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, I will put enmity. That's exactly what's going on. We should not be surprised to see it. That the seed of the serpent, his fallen angels, are attempting to corrupt the seed line of the woman so that her seed will not bruise him on the head. So that her seed will not crush the serpent. Because it will only be one from the line of Adam and Eve, purely from the line of Adam and Eve, who will crush the serpent's head, and God will preserve this line. But Satan, blinded by his pride, thinks he can win. And look at how narrowly God preserves his servants. God preserves his line to the servant, Jesus Christ. We might look at that and say, look how close Satan came to winning. But I don't think that's the best way to look at it. I think the best way to look at it is, look how difficult it is for Satan to win. That even when he looks like he gets so close still, it's impossible for him. That's the best he can do. He can't thwart God. He never will be able to. In fact, that part of history is already finished. We've already been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is a finished historical event. And when we believe in Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, we take part in that and we are sealed permanently in that salvation as well, so that the first stage of the crushing of the serpent's head has already taken place. You could even say that his head is crushed, Jesus just has not picked up his foot yet. When he picks up his foot, he will begin to roll. Hebrews 1.13 says, To which of the angels has he, that is God, ever said, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? To whom could God say, sit at my right hand? Could he say this to an angel? No. So just as mankind is neither alien, ape, or angel, so the seed line that was preserved could not be alien, ape, or angel, but only mankind, only from the line of Adam, 
this is fundamental and important. So when the Pope says that he would offer salvation to aliens if they made contact, he has no right to do so. He has no foundation to do so. In fact, those aliens he makes contact with would likely be the demons themselves. Those demons which have no redeemer. I would say, planting our feet firmly on a literal interpretation of Genesis is fundamental for understanding all subsequent scripture. So now we deal with the children of this rebellion. Actually, let me come back really quick, because I forgot to mention, nevertheless his days shall be 120 years. This does not mean that mankind's ages will be limited to 120 years old. That is nowhere here in the context, language, or any traditional interpretation until Hugh Ross. So, if you read him, you may believe this view, but he is, no, it does not work. What he's talking about is 120 years left of God's patience. 120 years from the time this prophecy was given to Noah until judgment would come. Noah has a time limit. He received this time limit 22 years before his seed line son was born. For 22 years, he understood his duty, his mission. He was a preacher of righteousness. He was warning, just as Enoch was, of the end to come. And God was going to preserve him through the flood. All right. On to our last verse this morning, Genesis 6-4. And we get to deal with this fun topic of the Nephilim. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So who are these Nephilim? We don't know this term in English, although we think we might. This is not an English word. This is a transliteration. That means Nephilim is Nephilim in Hebrew. What does Nephilim mean in Hebrew? Well, it comes from the root word uh, to fall. Some interpret this as mighty men who fell on others in battle and so conquered them. But I think a better, more natural interpretation of this is the same as the fallen angels. These were the ones who are the product of the fallen ones. The new, or the uh, King James Version, rather, translates this as giants. For the King James, that was not a bad interpretation, but for the 21st century English language, that is a bad interpretation. Because this does not mean giants, as we think of it, as big people, but it came from the Latin transliteration of the Greek word gigantes, which comes from the Greek words of ge, meaning earth, and genao, to be born, those born on the earth. These are the product of the watchers and rebellious women on the earth. Now again, were angels females? I'm sure the men would have rebelled. Probably would have even been a faster rebellion. But angels are males, so it was women who were rebellious, 
and joined themselves together with these, these angels and produced the Nephilim. The Nephilim are the product of this union. Merrill Unger says, the Nephilim are considered by many as giant demigods, the unnatural offspring of the daughters of men, mortal women, in intercourse with the sons of God, angels. This utterly unnatural union violating God's created order of being was such a shocking abnormality as to necessitate the worldwide judgment of the flood. Now here is also where we get millennia of mythology. Because these demigods were not demigods, but demi-demons. This was the unnatural product of angels and man. Something outside of God's created order. Something which he did not sanction. Unions which he did not sanction. The seed of which could have no redeemer. And perhaps they had some sort of supernatural or angelic powers. Perhaps they were angelic in nature, as well as flesh in nature. And so when we get mythological stories like the goddess Mother Earth uniting herself with the other gods, like, I don't do Greek mythology, but there was another god that she's supposed to unite herself with, these titans that produce demigods. Well, that's an aberration in secular history. We have no idea where that came from. Why do so many cultures have this idea? Cultures that should have no contact by evolutionary standards, but when we look at scripture and what it says in Genesis 1 through 11, it makes perfect sense that when Noah and his sons came off the ark, having just been rescued from this world in which angelic corruption was running rampant, and violence was intensifying across the whole planet so that God had to destroy it with a flood. Naturally, Noah and his sons would tell their sons about this. And they would tell their sons. And as mankind became yet continually rebellious after the flood, they would begin to glorify what God condemned. They would begin to look at these as gods. Those myths that their fathers told them might have a grain of truth. Now it says that they are uh, mighty men who were of old men of renown. This does not mean good. Nimrod is designated as the same. It says now Cush became the father of Nimrod and he became a mighty man on the earth. Well, Cush is the founder of Babel, the inception of Babylon, the perennial enemy of Israel, that final kingdom which rebels and wages war with the coming kingdom of the Messiah. Nimrod was an enemy from the beginning, and his product was an enemy forever of God. Now, Nimrod as well wasn't only the founder of Babel, but guess what other city he was the founder of? Nineveh. After the dispersion of Babel, he went north a bit and founded Nineveh. And we know that although Nineveh repented for a time, eventually they were destroyed because of their rebellion. It was built into them from their very foundation, from their very 
founder, Nimrod, who was a mighty one on the earth. In fact, some say he was a, yeah, here it is, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. This does not mean for the benevolence of the Lord. He was a mighty hunter and he did so before the face of the Lord. When we get there, we'll see that this was probably not a hunter of animals. I'll leave it at that for now. But these Nephilim were here at that time and they were also here afterwards. Now, some people take this verse and say, okay, so they weren't destroyed in the flood. I might mention to you, has the flood been mentioned at all in this context? I've talked about it because that's the judgment that's coming. But you know, the flood is not mentioned once between Genesis 5.1 and Genesis 6.8, which is our context, the Toledot of Adam. Our timestamp here is not at the flood. Our timestamp here is for when the sons of God had intercourse with the daughters of man. So the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. So from that point, the Nephilim were produced, and after that point. Because at what point in history did this take place? I'll go back to my handy little outline here. What this is saying is the Nephilim were on the earth from probably about 460, AC, after creation, until almost 1600 AC. That's what it means by they were in the earth in those days, in those days meaning before Noah, and also afterwards, all the way to the time of Noah. They were not dying out before the flood. The flood was necessary for them to die out. They do not exist after the flood. They have not come back since What it means by they were there also afterwards means they were there all the way to the time of the flood. They were mighty men who were of renown. Now, Matthew twenty-two thirty is often used, again, as a proof text to say that angels cannot possibly have had union with women and produced offspring. Because Jesus himself said in the resurrection, they, that is the resurrected saints, neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So if we won't be having marriages and children in heaven, that means angels can't either, right? But here we have a locative statement that is very important in heaven. Where are these angels that are corrupting themselves with women? Are they in heaven? No. Are they in their proper domain, abiding in their proper abode? No, they are rebelling. They are not like the angels in heaven. The angels in heaven are those who did not commit this sin. That's why this has to be distinguished. Jesus Christ could have said they could have been like angels. In the resurrection, they'll be like angels. Why did he have to specify which angels? Because there are angels that did not follow this pattern. Jesus Christ is not haphazard about the words he uses. He is very specific, and he is very concise in his specificity. They will be like the angels in heaven, because the angels in heaven were not rebellious and did not marry and were not given in marriage. These angels, in Genesis chapter 6, did not keep their domain. 
and abandoned their proper abode. Now, when Israel receives this book of Genesis, the Nephilim come up again in their context, in what's actually going on on the ground. In Numbers 13, 33, 10 of the spies that went to spy out the land come back and they say, we saw Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. So did these Nephilim come back after the flood, or were they not destroyed in the flood? Well, that's impossible because God said that he destroyed all things in the flood. So did they come back? I think the answer is a very obvious no. And first of all, I like that they try to defend how this is possible. We saw Nephilim in the land because the Nephilim are the sons of Anak. They needed to defend their position because their position was indefensible. Just one verse earlier, again, context is king. It says that the, uh, these spies gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report. A bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all of the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. You know, this is not their first report either. This is the second one. Because the first one wasn't scary enough. It didn't produce the correct result. Because Caleb and Joshua said, so what? God's on our side. And they say, oh wait, you don't get it. These aren't just any scary men, these are Nephilim. These are monsters. You know, like those things Moses was writing about in Genesis. Once again, we don't want to let the liars write our context for us. We don't build our theology off the words of liars. Just like when Satan says that if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like gods. God never said that. Yet, we often interpret that that is what happened, but God didn't want that to happen to them. That is not what happened. They did not become like gods. That was not what God was keeping them from. By keeping them from the tree, he was keeping them in obedience giving them an opportunity for obedience. But did you know that the Olivet Discourse in which God or Jesus states that the coming of the days of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah? Who is the audience for this? It's the disciples. Twelve Jews, still in a Jewish context, before the church was ever mentioned even. There's room for it in Matthew's gospel. But he has not declared that there will be a church at this point. What he is discussing with these disciples is the future days of Israel in the tribulation period, not the church age. The church age will not see days like the days of Noah. It will probably get pretty close. But there is a special uniqueness about the days of Noah, which we do not see today. 
says those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. They did not understand until the flood came and took them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. What kind of marriages were taking place before the flood? In the days of Noah. This doesn't mean that life is going to be going on just as it always has been, and then suddenly, boom, Jesus Christ is going to come and take everyone away and judge the rest. No, this means corruption is going to go on hyperdrive during these last seven years. What does it mean to be in Noah's day? In Revelation, we have a resurgence of demonic activity, such as has not happened since since the Gospels, to be honest. Because the Gospels, these demons were trying to keep Jesus Christ from the cross. And in Revelation, these demons, just like Satan, know that their time is running short. But they are being let loose from their temporary bonds. In Luke 8.30, Jesus casts, or he is uh, speaking with a demon called Legion. I think that is 200,000 demons, if I remember what legion means correctly. So he says, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. They were telling Jesus, do not send us away into captivity, into confinement. They say, send us into this group of pigs instead. Well, in Revelation 9, 2 through 3, which is just one example of many of the demonic activity that will happen again in the last seven years, it says, he opened the bottomless pit, that is an angel, and smoke went out of the pit, like smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened but the smoke, uh, by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locust upon the earth, and power was given them as scorpions of the earth, have power. They have tails like scorpions and stingers and their tails as their power to hurt men for five months. They have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek his name is Apollyon. Demonic activity will occur during these last seven years in a way that it does not during the church age because the church age has the benefit of the presence of the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, which indwells each one of us. When that restrainer is taken away, corruption will again come onto the earth just like it was in the days of Noah. We are not living in the days of Noah and be thankful that we are not. It's pretty bad, but it'll get worse. Finally, our application. And for this, I wanna pull out that term, sons of God, because you'll remember we stayed in the Old Testament context. But sons of God is used in a brand new way, actually in the same way, but for a brand new group of people in the New Testament. So for Israel, when they are called my son by God, what is God saying? In Exodus 4.22, it says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. What does it mean to be a son of God? It does not mean to be an angel. But when it is used of the angels, it's used in the same way 
as God is using it here for Israel. It means a creation directly from the hand of God. The angels do not have angelic fathers. They all have God as their direct creator. Just as Adam, who was the son of God, was created directly by the hand of God. So in Isaiah 43.1, we see, but now says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, Israel. He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Now, do you remember this Hebrew word, bara? God does not always create something brand new. When he does, it stands out. Israel was a brand new creation. He both formed and created Israel. He formed them out of the nations, but he created them as a nation. They are his firstborn son. They are his first collection of people as a people. In Ephesians 2.14, we see that for he himself is our peace, that is Jesus Christ, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. This is speaking of the unity of the church and Israel in the body of Christ. There is no dividing wall between Jew and Gentile in this unique group, the church. That wall has been taken down. What does that allow us then as the church? We don't take over the inheritance of Israel proper, but we are allowed to come into their inheritance for certain aspects, such as the spiritual blessings. We don't receive their land. We don't sit on their throne. Jesus Christ will sit on the throne and David in his resurrected body. But we do get to become sons of God, fellow heirs together with Israel of the spiritual blessing, which we will receive when they receive theirs. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We are brought together to him, a new creation in him. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So that Paul can then go on in Galatians 3.26 and say, For you are all sons of God, through faith in Christ Jesus, speaking to both Jew and Gentile in the church. And because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of his Son, the Holy Spirit, which indwells each one of us, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So our last verses this morning, Romans 8, 16 through 17, actually through 19. The Spirit himself then testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. And that is us. So our takeaway this week, all of God's word is trustworthy. Not one word needs to be made an excuse for. We do not have to make any excuses for God's word. Most of all, we should be encouraged by them. He has seen fit to reveal things to us which are otherwise unknowable, chief of which in this dispensation is the mystery of the church and her future. So let's hold on to that this week and let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the consistency of your word, that all the pieces fall together when we just let you say what you're saying. We thank you that we can trust you. We thank you that we can form our worldview around your revelation. We pray that we be faithful in doing so, that we not try to make excuses for your word, but rather let it shape us, shape our hearts, shape our minds. We pray these things, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen.